Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we leak weird and wonderful science directly into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. This week, the fresh scientists talk about sports injuries and editing... and editing genetic diseases in the time it takes for a sparkler to burn down. But first up, news of nuclear corrections and the end of democracy. Nuclear Corrections. The Australian Radiation Protection and Nuclear Safety Agency, ARPANSA, contacted me to tell me that they listened to the episode from two weeks ago and my report on the nuclear waste dump proposed for Kimber in South Australia contained some inaccuracies. I said, ARPANSA refused to grant a licence for the government to run the Opal Research Reactor in 2005. They say a Panza never refused to grant a license for Opal to operate, as advised in their earlier correspondence on Twitter. I was completely wrong here, paraphrasing from the report tabled to Parliament in 2006, Radioactive Waste and Spent Fuel Management in Australia, prepared by Ian Holland, formerly of Politics and Public Administration. In the report, he wrote that in March 2005, an Australian National Audit Office, ANAO, review of the Australian Radiation Protection and Nuclear Safety Agency, ARPANSA, finds issues in conflicting regulation, poor cost recovery, inadequate licensing and inconsistent monitoring. The ARPANSA Chief Executive Officer says that a satisfactory waste management strategy must be in place before he will issue a license to operate the new reactor. Meanwhile, the location of a waste store is not resolved. So you can see that the Arpanza CEO never refused to grant a licence, he just set a condition for a satisfactory strategy for managing radioactive waste. 14 years later, and there still isn't a plan for a world's best practised nuclear waste dump, just above ground temporary storage. I said Arpanza's CEO, in the 2006 Opal Operating Licence Approval, starts out by saying that an underground nuclear waste storage facility is essential to the licence. They say the Arpanza CEO's statement of reasons for granting the licence does not make this statement. And they're quite right. It mentions world's best practice and quotes scientific submissions about permanent disposal, but it doesn't require underground storage as essential for the licence. I was wrong. I said the Arpanza CEO made a public statement saying that satisfactory waste management strategies must be in place before he will issue a license to operate the new reactor. Arpanza wrote, As advised previously indeed, this condition was met. The Arpanza CEO states in the statement of reasons, I am satisfied that in fact, Australia has a strong plan for the management of waste and spent fuel. 
In fact, by having a clear strategy for dealing with the waste and spent fuel for research reactors and starting on a path of implementation of it, Australia is ahead of other countries. This is where we disagree. I cannot see any Australian plan for disposing of intermediate level waste from the Opal reactor, keeping it safe for hundreds of thousands of years in a geological depository, which is world's best practice. Finland is way ahead of us, in that they have almost completed a geological depository to store their radioactive waste hundreds of metres deep underground. I will seek more information from the spokesperson from the National Radioactive Waste Management Facility. Visiting Assange Members of Parliament Andrew Wilkie and George Christensen, as joint chairs of the Bring Assange Home Parliamentary Group, have flown to the United Kingdom at their own expense in hopes of meeting Julian Assange and lobbying the British government for his release. The case for Julian Assange to be extradited to America for revealing American soldiers of committed war crimes is scheduled for next week. None of the soldiers who murdered unarmed adults and children have been prosecuted. Julian Assange remains imprisoned without charge in Belmarsh Prison. The United Nations Rapporteur on Torture, Cruel and Degrading Treatment, Professor Nils Melzer, has asked that charges be laid against the people that have directed his psychological torture in solitary confinement. Julian Assange is very unwell, and in court he appears as if he's been drugged. His imprisonment and torture is in breach of the UK, EU and international laws. The Australian Department of Foreign Affairs and Trading say on their website that their responsibility is only towards Australian citizens who are being treated worse than other prisoners in the same prison. Julian Assange has been denied basic legal rights as a prisoner enjoyed by all the other prisoners in Belmarsh, such as being allowed to speak with his lawyers and read his own legal documents to prepare his defence. In court, the Chief Magistrate has accepted that this is the case, but has refused to act on it. At Belmarsh Maximum Security Prison, the inmates have banded together to demand that Julian Assange be given these basic legal rights and released from solitary confinement. The Australian Government have denied any problems with Julian Assange's treatment in prison. His extradition case is overseen by Chief Magistrate Lady Emma Arbuthnot. She her husband and her son are all involved in companies that serve the British and American intelligence community and have been named in documents published by WikiLeaks. UK law requires her to declare any conflicts of interest and recuse herself from the case, but she won't. Lady Arbuthnot has shown open hostility to Julian Assange and often asked the American intelligence officials in the room for their advice. She's also banned the press and the public from the courtroom. The Americans who illegally spied on Julian Assange when he was living in asylum in the Ecuadorian embassy are trying to charge him with espionage for being a journalist. The US government claims that American laws apply to an Australian citizen publishing in the United Kingdom, but none of the American constitutional legal protections, such as freedom of speech or freedom of the press, apply to anyone not a US citizen. If Julian Assange is extradited and inevitably found guilty in the kangaroo court planned for him in Virginia, then it denies the US Constitution as the foundation of American law. 
it strips human rights from everyone in the world in one fell swoop. If someone who's not a US citizen can be charged with treason against the US government, with spying for the public instead of an enemy nation, under the doctrine that the American jurisdiction covers the whole world and publishers are hostile non-state agents, then democracy is over for everyone. All hail the new American empire, which would rather jail publishers and journalists than the soldiers who murdered civilians. You can obey the law in your own country, but if the American government doesn't like what you say or do, then they can extradite you and torture and imprison you forever, with no rights at all. Next, they could just openly assassinate you. It's been estimated that the Americans may ask for 175 years of prison, but they may well just torture and execute him. In Australia, our government has been quick to act on this new reality. In June 2019, they sent their political police to raid the newsroom of the Australian public broadcaster, the ABC, searching for documents that would identify the sources for their stories revealing that Australian soldiers in Afghanistan had murdered unarmed civilians, including children. The political police also raided the home of journalist Annika Smethurst to find the sources for her reports that Australia's spy agencies were lobbying the government to let them spy on Australian citizens legally. They spent an entire day going through her underwear drawers and generally being as intimidating as possible. The Australian federal court judge appointed by this government last week ruled that the raids on the journalists were legal, opening the way for Australian journalists to be jailed for publishing stories about government crimes. It's now a crime to report an employee of the government is committing a crime. The Catalan Dignity Commission has honoured Julian Assange with its 2019 Dignity Prize for raising awareness around the world about the plight of the Catalans in the lead-up to the 2017 independence vote. Julian Assange has been awarded the 2020 Gary Webb Freedom of the Press Award by the Board of the Consortium for Independent Journalism. There's a list of 21 other awards for journalism awarded to Julian Assange over the last 12 years on defend.wikileaks.org. A German parliamentary committee have nominated Julian Assange, Chelsea Manning and Edward Snowden for the 2020 Nobel Peace Prize. Reality winner languishes in prison for revealing evidence that the Russian government interfered in the 2016 elections to help Donald Trump win. Chelsea Manning is back in prison and accumulating a huge fine every day because she refuses to testify against Julian Assange. Democracy requires an informed public, which means journalism. When it's a crime to report a crime, democracy will be over. When one nation's laws rule everybody else in the world, democracy is over. There are protests all over the world to defend Julian Assange from extradition. It's not too late. Parliamentarians George Christensen and Andrew Wilkie have met this week with Professor Nils Melzer to talk about the torture of Julian Assange and with Jeremy Corbyn, who believes the government of the United Kingdom may have changed its view of their obligations to the US. Hopefully, Christensen and Wilkie can soon talk to the United Kingdom government about the release of Julian Assange.
You're listening to Ian Wolfe on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. The Fresh Science Bright Sparks Challenge. Sarah Brooker from Science in Public trains early career scientists to find the story in their science and get it out to the public. Then they retire to the pub to explain their research in the time it takes a sparkler to burn down. You'll hear about sports medicine and editing genetic diseases. So here's your hostess, Sarah Brooker. And this evening we've got a special guest appearance from someone from Melbourne. Welcome to the stage, Adam Kelviner from La Trobe University. The Sydney people were very kind to him, weren't they, Adam? They were. Young athletes who suffer a serious knee injury, or more specifically an anterior cruciate ligament or ACL injury, face a difficult decision, either to undergo surgery to reconstruct the ACL or to undergo prolonged rehab without the need for surgery. In our world-first clinical trial, we compared these two treatments head-to-head. What we discovered is that reconstructed surgery provides no additional benefit than rehab alone in terms of pain, function, quality of life and return to physical activity. So now we can encourage young athletes who have an ACL injury that they don't need to go under the knife, they can do just as well with rehab. I don't think the surgeons are going to like you very much. You've just removed their business. That's what they say as well. So the data are the data. And so the data suggests that there's no additional benefit from having surgery. For some people, they'll still be surgical candidates. So from this research, what we're suggesting is that everybody who has an ACL injury should undergo at least three months of rehab before they have surgery because you can always go and have surgery after you've had rehab. You can't go and reverse the surgery. And surgery comes with risks. You have a small risk of infection. We know that about 20% of people who have the reconstruction will actually re-rupture their graft within two years when they go back to play their sport, and that's a devastating second injury for these people. And so, absolutely, the financial incentives for surgeons are huge, and our challenge now is to actually try and implement these findings to change practice, which is a real challenge. How did you measure this? Like, how did you get to your findings? Did you analyse people before surgery, after surgery? Did you interview them? Did you do secret shopper interviews? So this was a a randomised controlled trial. So we had 120 people who signed consent once they had their initial injury. They then flipped a toss of a coin, essentially, and if you were randomised to the surgery group, you would go and have surgery. If you were randomised to the other group, you would go and have rehabilitation with a physiotherapist. The surgery group also had rehab, so really the only difference was the surgery in one group. And so this randomised trial, the nature of randomization means that it's 50-50 chance, and that's the best study design in terms of working out whether one treatment has an effect on outcomes. So in terms of the outcomes, we measured pain, using, not with blood, (laughs) but with subjective outcomes. We measured physical activity and people, how much they returned to their physical activity, returned to sport. We also took a number of MRIs on these people. So when they first enrolled, at six months after enrolment, two years and five years, and what we actually found was that the reconstruction group actually had higher rates of early arthritis on MRI. So just another reason why 
we maybe shouldn't be doing this surgery in these young people. And so these people, I, I actually call them young people with old knees because they are really you know, less than 40 when they're developing arthritis potentially and then ongoing costs regarding knee replacements, etc. So it's a huge problem we're just starting to try and address. So a lot of footy players who do their ACL or skiers, so there's a lot of people who actually get their money through playing sport. And so an ACL injury is quite a, a big thing for them versus, you know, someone who goes weekend skiing. Are you talking to football groups? So I firstly need to preface by saying that this study was in recreational athletes and non-elite athletes. I think they're a different population that obviously have financial incentives and they have access to a whole lot of medical treatment groups. They can see the physio every day of the week because they have the funding to be able to do that. So our results don't necessarily translate to the elite group and that's I think another challenge if we wanted to get all of the from Victoria. So AFL clubs, everyone has a, an injury to flip a coin and get half to have a reconstruction and half to try not, I don't think that's going to go very well with a lot of the AFL clubs, despite the data being that there's not a lot of difference. There's a couple of ways to try and implement. The first way is actually getting to the patients and educating the patients about what you read in the paper, that Nick Natanui had the surgery because that was the best thing to do. Then everyone comes to me as a physio and says, I want what he had is he had, must have had the best treatment. And I need to actually change their mindset and say, well, actually, the evidence suggests that that's not the case necessarily. And then also at the other end of the scale is actually talking to surgeons because some will still be surgical cases. It's just the $64 question is actually working out who's going to do well with surgery, who's not going to do well with surgery, and then directing those people to the right treatment at the right time. It all comes back to having to exercise, isn't it? The physio, you just have to do your physio exercises. If you get patients who come in, often they just, can't you just fix it? Do I have to do the exercise? Or are you going to face a bit of backlash from patients? So one of the things that's a real challenge is behavioural change. And as physios, we face that every day when we try and prescribe exercises to people and they just want a quick fix. They want to be able to take a pill in many instances. And I think I go to conferences and hear all the time that exercise is medicine. And if we were able to put physical activity and exercise into a pill, it would be the most powerful drug the world's ever seen. But we're humans and we don't like to get off the couch and put ourselves through pain and do exercise, etc. So that's a real challenge and we're just starting new clinical trials where we're actually trying to work out how we can prevent this early arthritis by doing strengthening exercises and doing exercise and to lose weight and, and, and be physically active. And one of the things we keep talking about and challenging ourselves as a research group is how do we get people to be more physically active when they've you know, failed rehab and not done well maybe overweight, etc. And we're starting to think about using psychological techniques, so motivational interviewing, um, even possibly providing some financial incentives to exercise, which is a really interesting side of it as well. We know that giving people money to stop smoking works really well. And, and so I think that's a really interesting aspect to see how that goes with exercise too. Well, good luck with that. Thank you very much, Adam. I see a familiar face from last year and I'm wondering whether we might invite a fresh scientist from last year up to see how well he's gone one year on. What do you reckon? Yeah, great. Come on up. The, the aim of Fresh Science, so Fresh Science has been running for 22 years and it started by Ian Anderson, the Australasian editor of New Scientist magazine. He was going to conferences and he was seeing some terrific research happening. 
He couldn't report on it because new scientists needed to report on news that was of international significance. But he felt there's so many great steps in science happening. I want to hear more from these researchers early in their career. And so he went down to the pub, hence we're in the pub tonight, and gathered with a group of colleagues and friends and said, how can we get the work of early career researchers out there? So this is 22 years of fresh science, and the aim is to grab these researchers early in their career while they're still learning that using big words means that you're intelligent and you understand your field. Yes, because when you're in science, you've got to use the language to show you know what you're going on, and we go, uh-uh. Not in the real world. When you step into the real world, let's break down the jargon, let's talk normally. So the pub test stands with science because we want these researchers one year on to still be talking in the taxi at the end of the night and telling the taxi driver what they heard. So Lawrence, you were here last year. Can you remember your research results? Sorry, what was I doing last year? Do you remember? Uh, yeah. yeah, I'm still working on it. <laughs> Are you ready for the Bright Sparks Challenge? How did you go last year? I, I think I did all right. I got asked a question about zombies. <laughs> so. so that's, I mean, that's just like talking to 2GB. That's no different. You never know what's going to come up. So since Fresh Science, have you done any media after that? Uh, we've done some. Um, so our team started a blog. Um, we've had a couple of articles in magazines and newspapers. I don't think it's been about my work, though. Was that scary? Um, it's different. It's, it's certainly different. I mean, I usually write you know, scientific papers, which are pretty jargon-heavy. So it's certainly a challenge to try and make that accessible. But it's been good. <laughs> sure, let's do it. Okay. Hello, my name's Lawrence Wilson, and I'm a genome editor. Uh, which means I come up with ways to actually figure out how we can actually change the DNA of a living cell, which obviously has huge implications in things like gene therapy, where you could use this technology to fix mutations that cause horrible diseases like cystic fibrosis or Huntington's disease. In the last year, we've partnered up with a group at the Westmead University who are actually working to translate this technology to the clinic. So they're trying to come up with actual technologies using stuff we've built to be able to fix diseases in newborn babies, and other horrible genetic diseases to increase people's life. You did really well. Thank you so much. Please, a round of applause for Lawrence. Thank you. We're going to take a 10-minute commercial break where you can order dinner, grab a drink, and while you're doing that, Let's do a bit of poetry. So your research is your inspiration to create either a limerick or a haiku. And there's some pretty clever people in the room. So just grab a group of people and get them to help you out. So limerick. Does everyone know what a limerick is? Please remind us. We're a scientist. We want it explained in full detail. So limerick is five lines of text. The rhyming pattern is A-A-B-B-A. And the syllables per line are the same, A-A-B-B-A. Do you want an example? There was a young girl named Miss Bright who could travel much faster than light. She departed one day in an Einsteinian way and came back on the previous night.
That wasn't mine, I just Googled it, but you know, it's preparation. A haiku, so for limerick sounds too hard, you could try a haiku. A haiku is a Japanese verse, three lines of text. The syllables per line are five, seven, five. For example, a supernova emits beauty in darkness, explosions of light. Limericks and haikus from the Fresh Science Sparkler Sessions with Sarah Brooker next week. You can see photos of all this week's scientists on the website. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Are you a scientist, artist, biohacker or maker who'd like to be interviewed about your work? Would your company like to sponsor Diffusion? Send your contributions, opinions, helpful suggestions and donations to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. Please like the Diffusion Science Radio page on Facebook and rate the show on iTunes. Tell your friends. Follow me on Twitter at Ian Wolfe. The news music was Rhinos Theme by Kevin MacLeod of Incompetech.com. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia to 28 stations on the community radio network, including 2RBM in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales, 8CCC in Alice Springs and Tennant Creek, 2MVR in Nambucca Valley, 3MVR in the Mallee Border Districts of Victoria and South Australia, City Park Radio 7LTN in Launceston, Tasmania, and 2XXFM in Canberra. Diffusion is syndicated globally on the National Science Foundation's Science360 internet radio station, and also on astronomy.fm. Subscribe to the podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. And check the website for links, photos, and videos about this week's show. If you enjoyed this show, you can explore more than a thousand previous episodes archived on diffusionradio.com where the shows are labelled by keywords so you can focus in on the stories you want to hear. Join my patrons at patreon.com slash diffusionradio. Make a donation through paypal.me slash ianwolf. You can support the show through buying science shirts through the affiliate links at diffusionradio.com slash support. Subscribe to the Diffusion YouTube channel at youtube.com slash c slash diffusionradio. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know, and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick. Everything from a molecule to a living organism. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Knowledge of his physical world, its past, its present, and its future. And in your moments of relaxation, now and in the years to come, you will find the study of science leading you into fascinating pursuits. Photography. Collecting. Why study science? Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life.